What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is Bill Press and Friends on the District Productive Network. We start out with the latest on the Russian hacking. Yes, from Russia with no love, we know. Russia, no doubt about it. And let's get this straight, all right? Don't believe there's still people out there. I was on CNN yesterday with one of them who were saying, well, we don't know whether Russia did this because the intelligence agencies disagree among themselves. No, no, no. That is wrong. That is, in fact, a lie. 17 intelligence agencies all agree, all agree, no dissent. They put, and this is not a rumor, they put out a report to Congress, all 17 saying, and this was in October, that Russia was interfering through hacking of the DNC and the Clinton campaign, that Russia was interfering in the United States presidential election. Fact. The only disagreement is between the CIA and the FBI over why they did it. And there are, there's some believe that it started, NBC reports it start according to their sources, in the Kremlin, it started with uh, Vladimir Putin wanting to do a little, exercise a little vendetta against Hillary Clinton. It emerged into uh, or morphed into an attempt to kind of give democracy a bad name by stirring things up and confusing things uh, and causing a little, you know, kind of uh, attitude around the world about, look, these Americans can't even get their elections straight. And then, according to NBC, it morphed into, of course, an attempt to help Donald Trump get elected, which, of course, succeeded. But the question is, what are we going to do about it? President, are we going to sit by and let a foreign power, any foreign power, whether it's China or Saudi Arabia or Russia or whomever, actually interfere and try to change the course of an American election? I would hope not. President Obama, and this was just released minutes ago, uh, an interview that he has given to Scott Inskeep of, um, Steve Inskeep, I guess it is, right? Yeah, yes, yeah. Steve Inskeep of NPR. Uh, th- this re- interview just released, President Obama says, no, we're not going to stand by. We are going to take action. Here he is. When any foreign government tries to impact the integrity of our elections, that we need to take action, and we will, at a time and place of our own choosing. Some of it may be uh, explicit and publicized. Some of it may not be. We'll take action at a time and place of our choosing. Uh, 
reportedly. That, that's, that could mean a lot of different things, man. That could mean a lot of different things. And he doesn't have much time left. But reportedly, that could mean uh, tighter sanctions against Russia or uh, maybe some kind of retaliatory cyber security, uh, cyber warfare action. Uh, Steve Inskeep asks him, well, you know, what happens if uh, the next guy comes in? If whatever response you take is not completed by January 20th, do you have any reason to have confidence that President Trump will continue it? My view is that this is not a partisan issue. And part of what we should be doing is to try to take it out of election season and move it into governing season. So President Obama clearly saying, and remember, he's ordered this review, which he wants on his desk by January 20. Well, it had better get there before January 20 if we're going to take any action. But he says in the time he's got left, he will uh, retaliate uh, against Russia once he's got the facts in front of him. Meanwhile, Donald Trump is still in denial. Donald Trump still says, this is ridiculous. We don't know whether Russia was involved or not. And in fact, he says, well, this is just the Democrats whining because they still can't accept the fact that Hillary lost and he won. And he still falsely says, we never talked about, why didn't they talk about, if this was so important, why didn't they talk about it before the election? Why did they wait until after Hillary lost? Well, as Josh Ernest pointed out yesterday, first of all, that is factually incorrect. Again, the intelligence agencies report came in October, October 7, to be precise. And Josh Ernest reminds us that back in July, Donald Trump was even joking about this. First of all, it is just a fact, you all have it on tape, uh, that the Republican nominee for president was encouraging Russia to hack his opponent because he believed that that would help his campaign. Yeah, true. True. Absolutely true. The last news conference Donald Trump has given. Right. Right. On July 27, here he is down in Mar-a-Lago. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. I think you will probably be rewarded mightily by our press. Aha, uh-huh. there he is. What does he do? Just forget about that? I mean, how can the guy just lie through his teeth? Everybody still? keep that quote handy. Yeah. And every time that he says, we didn't know what was going on, take that clip and ram it down his throat. He knew what was going on. In fact, if we remember that Roger Stone, by the way, we haven't heard from Roger Stone lately. He's sort of on the outs, I guess. But at That's any rate, Christmas that Roger miracle. Stone at the time, who was still a very close advisor to Donald Trump, told the media after the DNC hacking, he said, just watch. The next one is going to be John Podesta, by name, the chair of the Clinton campaign. So the Trump campaign not only knew it was going on, they were very much involved in it. They knew who was going to be the next target. So, but the big news is President Obama vowing that in his time left, he's going to take some action. Retaliation in North Carolina. We'll talk about a bunch of poor losers, Republicans in the legislature now refusing to accept the fact, I guess, that Governor Pat McCrory was defeated, that Roy Cooper will be the next governor 
a Democrat, will be the next governor of North Carolina, have called a special session where they're trying to strip the governorship of a lot of its powers. Paul Blessed, writer for Indie Week, is in North Carolina, joins us on our news line this morning. Good morning, Paul. Good to have you with us. Thanks for having me. So what's going on now uh, in the legislature, uh, and what, what ex- how exactly are they trying to gut the powers of the, gov- of the governor? So uh, just some just some background. Uh, in 2010, uh, the Republicans took supermajorities in the House and the Senate, mm-hmm. um, and then gerrymandered the legislative districts and the congressional districts. Um, so when Pat McCrory won in 2012, they had they had unified government for four years, and then this year, you know, HB2, um, and you know, a lot of other things contributed to McCrory's loss. But McCrory lost to the Attorney General, who's been around for yeah, he's been the attorney general for 16 years, um, and the Republicans obviously do not like that. Uh, so they <laughs> and, called a special and McCrory fought it for what for six weeks almost, right after did, the election. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He he, you know, called he called for a recount. Uh, there was yeah. a lot of voter fraud claims thrown around. Um, so uh, he called a special session um, and called legislators back to rally to pass the relief package for Hurricane Matthew and uh, victims of the Western North Carolina wildfires. Um, mm-hmm. And it was a $200 million relief package. And, you know, since uh, since he conceded, there's kind of been rumors flying around that there was, you know, going to be something happening uh, that was not just the relief package. And, you know, up until the relief package passed, you know, they were just rumors. Um, and then the Senate passed the relief package, and then – uh, the lawyers uh, for the speaker, the Senate president, uh, and the lieutenant governor, and then all three of them were meeting out on the Senate floor. And then about five minutes later, uh, the Senate president announced another special session uh, uh-huh. that they had called <laughs> yeah, um, to be convened that day. Uh-huh. And then uh, they opened the filing period for bills, and about 25 bills were filed, and a lot of them uh, were pretty much broad attacks on the authority of the governor. Um, you know, one bill in particular requires Senate approval of cabinet appointees. Uh, another one limits the number of employees that serve at the pleasure of the governor. Uh, there, was a, there was another bill that um, limited the authority of the Supreme Court to hear constitutional ca- challenges, really just trying to consolidate Republican power any way that they can. And they do they have the votes to get all these bills passed and, and McCrory has the power still to sign them? Absolutely. Uh, you know, they have the supermajorities in, in both houses. And, you know, it's worth pointing out as well that uh, the legislative districts were ruled unconstitutional. Um, so yeah. currently they're serving in unconstitutional, in unconstitutionally gerrymandered seats, and they have to redraw legislative districts by, by March. And, and yesterday, um, you know, there were protests at the General Assembly. About 300 people were, were chanting in the gallery about 20 people got arrested, including a reporter. Oh, um, wow. And then I, I remember at least one le- legislator said, you know, these are constitutionally elected representatives, and uh, wow. they are not. Yeah. <laughs> so. Whoa. You know, North Carolina is, was sort of the canary in the coal mine in a way yeah. because yeah. They, they've had some real problems here for the last four years or so. But before right. that, yeah. And, and it just shows how bad things can be with a unified Republican government. And uh, so, so- it got ugly. 
wanted to talk about um, something very, very important. We are the wealthiest country on the planet, and yet there are too many kids in America who go hungry every night, but not as many as there were maybe eight years ago. Billy Shore is the founder and CEO of No Kid Hungry Share Our Strength, uh, and he's back in studio with us this morning. Billy, it's nice to see you. Thanks, Bill. Thank Glad you. to be here. So let's get to No Kid Hungry Share Our Strength. What What is... We are the wealthiest country on the planet. How many, what is the status of hunger among kids today in America? Well, as wealthy as we are, as you know, we've still got a lot of poverty, and hum- hunger is yeah. really a symptom of poverty. I'm, so, you know, with, with uh, close to. It's a stunning amount of poverty in this it's, level. It's huh? stunning, and what's what's really stunning is that poor people haven't recovered the way the rest of the economy has. So in, in 2006, Bill, we had 26 million Americans on the food stamp program. We call it SNAP now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Last year, that number was 46 million. Now it's down to about 43 million, but everything else has recovered. Autos have recovered, insurance has recovered, banks have recovered, but poor people haven't. We've still got 43 million on food stamps. Half of them are children. And Secretary Vilsack of the USDA that oversees these programs, he'll tell you that one of, of all the kids in America today, one out of two will be on food assistance at some point in their lifetime. This is really this is uncharted ter- this is uncharted territory for okay. our country. I mean, this is All really shocking. Kids in America, right. one out of two will be at food assistance at some point in, right. in their lifetime. Um, and so, you know, the the terrible thing, of course, is that kids in this country aren't hungry for the same reasons that kids around the rest of the world. It's not war or, or drought or famine. Uh, it's poverty and our lack of ability to connect them to anti-poverty programs. But when it comes to kids in particular, we, as you say, we've made a lot of progress in that regard. But before we get to, just I want to ask you about this food stamp because th- this number of people on food stamps because I hear all the time and we hear all the time from uh, Newt Gingrich is famous for sure. this uh, among others right saying this proves that the Obama Obama economy is a failure we have more people on food stamps in this country than ever before what does it mean that so many people are on food stamps well I think what it means and and you even saw this during uh, Clinton's presidency during kind of the you know the boom years is there's a there's a probably a, a, a sector of our economy, probably the bottom quintile uh, in terms of income or economics, who don't get pulled along when the economy does better. They're kind of they've been stuck, and we have an ec- economy that just doesn't reach everybody. I think that's been the biggest problem. It's income in e- the income inequality. It's income inequality, right. which has gotten worse. Which is which has gotten worse, yeah. and so as as things have improved for the top one percent, right, or two percent, or even maybe the top ten percent, but this these bottom. There's nothing is trickling down. No, that's right. And th- th- I mean, that's just a remarkable number uh, at this day and age of people who need food assistance. Right. You say there's not as not as many kids going hungry every night today as there were eight years ago. So what progress yeah. have we made under President Obama and, and how? Well, here's the thing. One, one of the things at Share Strength that we started to really focus on with the No Kid Hungry campaign is why are there so many kids hungry? We've got all these great public programs like not just food stamps, but school meals, school lunch, school breakfast. Yeah so forth. A lot of great private organizations, whether it's Feeding America or Share Our Strength, uh, Bread for the World, what have you. So we started to ask ourselves, why is this the case? And we realized there was this incredible opportunity because many millions of kids were just not participating in programs that had set up, been set up for them. Mm, so mm-hmm. if you take the school lunch program, we've got 21 million kids who get lunch. All 21 million are eligible for breakfast. When we started focusing on this, 9 million were getting it. So you think, why is that? Well, at yeah. lunch, they're already there. Breakfast, you have to get there yeah. early. There's yeah. the stigma yeah. attached to being the kids who go early. But the crazy thing is, bought and paid for, 
for all 21 million, an entitlement program so small that Democrats and Republicans exempted it from sequestration. Oh, you know, one of the few oh, things that's yeah, not wow. going to go away huh. for kids yeah. Uh, yeah. in a world where a lot is at risk of going away. And so we started going around to governors around the country saying, do you realize, and this, this was the argument that really worked, do you realize, I just had this conversation with Jerry Brown about uh, six weeks ago, do you realize you've left $160 million in Washington? In California's case, it's a lot more. Yeah. Uh, in California's case, it was you know several hundred million. In Washington, that could only be used to buy milk from your dairy farms and bread from your bakers to feed your kids in school. And every governor, Democrat or Republican, liberal, conservative, says, what do I have to do to, to, yeah, to get that money? Yeah. Um, and, and so, it, it and can, we help them enroll these kids. It can only be used for that program, correct? Yeah, exactly. You know, it's yeah. an entitlement program. Otherwise, it just sits in some account. Um, so it's a big opportunity. And so we've enrolled, we've literally added 3 million kids to school breakfast over the last couple of years. We've built uh, tens of thousands, close to 100,000 summer meal sites. Same deal in the summertime when the mm. schools are closed. Um, and, and, and the improving economy has reached some of these families. So Secretary Vilsack, who I was with the other day, told us that the number of kids in the country who are hungry on a chronic basis now is at the lowest level since they've been recording. Um, so that's that's significant progress. But the fact that that much issue. money is out there that's just being it's stunning missed. It is. Yeah, is is shocking. It's staggering, and that's why I think it's so important that you're doing what you're doing. But it's also a little depressing that these that these guys are missing well, it. it. It's really depressing because I made it sound like a logistical issue. It's really a political issue. So the first governor I talked to was Governor Ritter of Colorado, and when he said, "You know, how can this possibly be true?" I said, you know, if it had been a defense contract earmarked for, for, you know, and defense contracts are earmarked, their subcontracts are earmarked for different states. I said somebody would have been in the governor's office a long time ago. So it's really a testament to the fact that these kids are, they're not just vulnerable, they're voiceless, right? I mean, kids don't vote, they don't have PACs, they don't, uh, you know, they don't have lobbyists. And people think in a, you know, civic sense that uh, people are probably in the governor's office talking about what's good for kids. That's not, that's not what governors talk about. Yeah. Well, they've got you, though. They've so, got you. Oh, well, they've hopefully. got No Kids Hungry. They've got Share Our Strength. What happens to these programs under a President Donald Trump? Well, that's, a, that's, that's the big question. I think um, the good news is that so many of these programs are executed at the state level that I think our work and the progress continues. The bigger question will be whether Trump and Speaker Paul Ryan and others try to do things like block grant, um, the SNAP program, in which case it'll go away in a lot of states, whether they try and actually cut funding for some of these programs that have been these protected entitlement programs, that's an unknown. I think he's got you know some bigger things on his agenda. We may not even be on his radar screen for a little while. Yeah, but you could be on Paul Ryan's radar could screen. could be on Paul Ryan's. Because he wants to block grant uh, everything just right. about. All right, now you've got this podcast, right, yeah. on this issue. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, tell us about that. So, uh, well, it's really been fascinating. It's called Add Passion and Stir. It's on iTunes, like your podcast mm-hmm. and so many others. Add, and Add Passion, add passion and, and Stir. Love the name. Yeah, and the reason, thank you. Yeah. The reason we call it that is because every episode consists of talking to somebody in the food world, usually a chef or a restaurateur, uh, and somebody in kind of the social change world. And the reason we set it up that way is, and people I think have become increasingly sensitive to this. 
food is so connected to so many things in our lives. It's connected to our health. It's connected to um, uh, education, kids' ability to learn. Mm-hmm. Community. Right? I mean, it's connected yeah. to meeting community. people. Yeah, no, absolutely. And people are starting to realize that. And many chefs who you know got into the business because they love to cook and they love to build community have started to realize that you know food can actually change lives. We did a podcast episode yesterday with a, a woman named Sarah Pollan who has uh, two restaurants in D.C. They're soup get they're uh, soup. Uh, shops really and uh, her brand is Supergirl uh, and she says she's changing the world one bowl of soup at a time because all of her ingredients are organic it's all vegan she feels like she's changing the carbon footprint she's changing mm-hmm. people's health so there is this increased sensitivity and so on these episodes of Add Passion and Stir we always have somebody who's passionate about food and somebody who's passionate about social change and we find kind of the common bonds between the two of them and they're connected to the kids program as well um, well, many of them are connected to uh, our No Kid Hungry campaign, but many yeah. of them are just involved in the community in their own way. Uh, and, you know, chefs and restaurateurs get asked to, you know, they're kind of anchors in their community. They get asked to do everything. Some yeah. of them are working with the, you know, the, the Save the Whales or the Kidney Foundation right. or the zoo. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Some of them are working yeah. with Share Our Strength. No, one, really, of the more, one of the more interesting really episodes are. I saw, there was one where you talk about how it factors into gang violence. Right. You know, and again, it's like food and restaurants and chefs are sort of these pillars of of the community and people sort of gather around them for not only food and sustenance, but ideas and things like that. So right. I, I think it's really fascinating. We had Joe Marshall on from uh, from the Oakland, from the Bay Area, who does oh, yeah. gang, yeah. Uh, you know, uh-huh. and violence prevention with a chef uh, from uh, Brown Sugar Kitchen in Oakland named Tanya Holland, African-American soul food kind of chef. And they were talking about, you know, how you kind of create community through food and, and reaching kids. This is fascinating. But, you know, chefs really have become... And they've become celebrities. They've become, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And wasn't always that way, right? <laughs> no, that's right. There are right. more and more who are celebrities. And you're and, and, and I, I thought of it that way, but not just because of their cuisine talents, right, but, or culinary talents or whatever, but because of their role in the community. Yeah. And, and you're right. They are identified more and more with different causes. Uh, and um, and this, is, this is bringing it all together here. I love that. Hey, everybody, this is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Hey, uh, President-elect uh, Trump is heading down to uh, Washington, D.C. pretty soon, uh, right? Right after the beginning of the year for the big inauguration. And uh, rumors are that he may be partying at the Trump Hotel on Pennsylvania Avenue if it is still the Trump Hotel, there are questions about whether or not a government employee can actually lease a property from the federal government, uh, as Donald Trump has done. Well, Laurel Raymond, general reporter at Think Progress, has been looking into this. Uh, she is here in studio with us. Laurel, it's nice to see you. Nice to see you, too. Uh, have you been in the Trump Hotel? I have not, actually. Uh, I keep meaning to stop by and, like, peek into the lobby, but uh, 
That's okay. We're not going to hold it against you. I wouldn't go yeah. in there either. I, I was just wondering because I was in the neighborhood the other night, mm-hmm. and I was tempted to go in and take a look, and I said, nope, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Yeah, that's kind of how I feel. I'm not advocating that you go into the Trump Hotel and go and sit at the bar and order a bunch of drinks no. and then walk out on your tab. <laughs> I'm not saying you should do that, but that is something that some people might do. Just uh, saying. Yeah. I'm curious. I'd like to sort of see in what bad taste it is, but at the same time, I don't want to. Yeah. I certainly well, would not. If I walked in, I wouldn't spend any no, money. Don't spend any money there. <laughs> right. So what is the deal with this lease? So the thing about the lease is it's actually gotten a little complicated in the past day, but the big story is that Trump leased this hotel from the government in, or he signed a thing to lease the hotel from the government in like 2012. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, it's And we're talking about... Uh, the old post office building. Right, which in, is a government building. In Washington. It's a government building. And it needed, let's face it, it was really running mm-hmm. down. And it had some kind of like food court or or group of different smaller boutiques or something in the basement. They were trying to get people in there. But it was, it was a failure, right? Right. It wasn't going anywhere. So Trump took it over. And he's... I mean, on the exterior, at mm-hmm. any rate, done a good job of sprucing it up, and uh, and re and it opened about six weeks ago. Right? Yeah, about six weeks ago. So it's the old po- post office building at the corner of Pennsylvania and Twelfth, maybe. Twelfth, maybe. Yeah, it's actually just down the street from my office, so I yeah, see okay. it a lot. Right. All right. So now about the lease. So now about the lease, but so there's this thing in most government leases is apparently a standard clause where it says you can't. If you're a federal official, if you're an elected official, you can't lease or share in any benefits from a lease with the government. Mm-hmm. And it's like just to level the playing field, make sure there's not conflicts of interest, make sure that like everyday Americans have the same. I've seen the language. It's flat out. Yes. Right? You're very, a very employee, clear. You cannot right. sign a lease with the federal government. Exactly. Right. For profit making. So what's the what's the catch? Well, the catch now is that Trump is an elected official in the federal government, and he is leasing from the federal government. So now he's in the situation of he is both the landlord and the tenant, effectively, of this property. All right. So, But he hasn't been sworn into office yet, right? Right. So what you're saying, I guess, is that on January 20... Exactly. He will become a lawbreaker. Yes. And that... Yes, that seems to be pretty So why did you say it's complicated? It's complicated <laughs> because so a couple of day, like yesterday the GSA which is the the General Services or uh, uh, General Services Administration. Yeah, there we go. They they're the um, landlord for uh federal buildings uh nationwide. They're they're the the agency that has charge of all federal buildings. Right, yeah. exactly. So they apparently gave a briefing to Democratic lawmakers, and the Democratic lawmakers, um, some people from like House Oversight, issued a statement that said basically that the GSA said that Trump is going to be in breach of his contract and he's going to have to fully divest from the hotel, which is what a lot of ethics experts have been saying anyway. Right. And, and in fact, I know Congressman Elijah Cummings, yes. who's a, a ranking Democrat on the Oversight Committee, has has called on GSA to evict Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Right. So so that's what this GSA official told the apparently Democrat. told the Democrats. But then they issued a letter publicly saying this and like making this public and the GSA responded and said kind of like, "Well, we don't know that yet. We don't know what Trump's going to do with his businesses." Mm. So, um but Elijah Cummings' response was 
that officially speaking, until Trump is sworn in, it's a hypothetical issue. And we don't know what Trump is going to do with his businesses yet, so we don't know if he's actually going to divest voluntarily. It doesn't seem like he's going to, but if he were to do that, then it wouldn't be a problem. But he was supposed to announce that earlier this week, and then, of course, he delayed the press conference. Right. Welcome, uh, a man who's uh, here often enough. We consider him a member of our team. The other Igor, we call him. Uh, uh, Igor Babish from the Huffington Post, associate politi- politics editor. Very kind. Thanks, How are Bill. You, Excellent. How are All you? Right. Thanks Good for coming in, man. Congressman Peter King, who was at Trump Tower yesterday, uh, and I think he's so eager to uh, uh, to be a good friend of the new president-elect that he'll He'll go out and spill the, spit the talking points out for reporters, as he did yesterday. <clears throat> certain elements of the media, certain elements of the intelligence community, and certain politicians are really doing the work of the Russians, because they're, they're creating this uncertainty over the election. Yeah, there you are. You are doing the work of the Russians, and so are the CIA, right? right. The CIA is a political organization that is all for Hillary Clinton and, not, and, a, and working against Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a novel argument that uh, just by dis- discussing the the fact that a, a hack happened, uh, we are the ones at fault. Uh, we are the Russian stooges. That's uh, yeah. When seventeen intelligence agencies say it is our conclusion that Russia is is are the ones behind the hacking at the DNC and the Clinton campaign, suddenly then they're all working for the Democratic Party. Like to undermine the intelligence community here in America, that is a very, very dangerous position yeah. to take. Yeah. And and by the way, if literally any other politician went in that direction than, I mean, than if, Donald Trump, it'd be the end of their career. Barack yeah. Obama. If it, oh, my God. It. Can, oh, you God. <laughs> oh, yeah. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? They, would, they yeah. would be storming the White House. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I don't, like, literally. Yeah. Oh, I don't trust the CIA. I don't trust the White House, uh, the uh, FBI. I don't trust the NSA. I don't trust any of them, right? I mean, yeah, right. Imagine what would fall. When you take a look at the uh, – Peter King has not gotten a job yet. Maybe it was there interviewing for one yesterday. When you take a look at the um, Trump cabinet, it's just complete, I think, except for agriculture so far. What do you see? A lot of, uh, a lot of uh, white, rich men. Um, mostly, mm-hmm. um, I think uh, their combined, you know, total value, net value, is like something like 130 billion. Uh, so, in the sense that Trump really wants to surround himself with, I don't think it's a it's a mistake that he did this. He he sees, you know, uh, uh, net worth is is really his number one goal and what he wants around him: successful people, business people. Um, now, in the sense that, you know, whether they have conflicts of interest, uh, what kind of vetting they've gone through, what kind of, you know, have they released their tax returns, have they done any of this, that's something we're going to be watching closely, you know, when it comes time to um, confirm these people. Um, and that's where I think uh, there is the most chance for, you know, some of these things to come out. As uh, Senator Claire McCaskill has said, it's a cabinet of Goldman Sachs, Generals and gazillionaires, basically <laughs> the three G's, I guess. <laughs> uh, what happened to Carly Fiorina, uh, <laughs> among other losers, <laughs> haters and losers? So I, I will give it to Trump. He's shown a particular knack for kind of uh, uh, 
showing who these people truly are uh, in the sense that, you know, yeah, you've got yeah. Mitt, you've got Cruz, you've got Carly coming up and praising Trump and kissing the ring uh, because they, they want to, you know, they want a job. They want a seat at the table. And um, some of some of their, the, the things they've said, you know, Trump is a cancer, a conservatism, Rick Perry, uh, Mitt Romney. Uh, Mitt is just, a phony. A yeah, fraud. a fraud, a con man. Yeah. Uh, really, really tells you who they are. All right, now, we are, we're so excited. The last time we saw Marcy Stetch from Emily's List was in our special Election Day broadcast. Yeah. She's back this morning. We were so excited then because we were going to make history by electing the first woman president of the United States Marcy, what the hell happened? That's a great question. Um, I did. I remember that night fondly, coming to to talk <laughs> yeah. about the election we cycle. We were all <laughs> very. A good time. We I were know. all very home before the storm. We were all very we high, all, and now we're very low. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, look, like it has been, um, you know, conventional wisdom and things that we think to be true, data polling, all of that is has been turned on its side this election cycle. And I think for all of us who work in politics and have been political operatives for a long time, um, we've been doing a lot of thinking about what went wrong and what could have gone better. And I think you can come up with a hundred different combinations of what you think mm-hmm. went wrong and what. Um, and But what we do know at the end of the day, and, and the more we're actually getting more information, I mean, there was clearly interference and, and you know, Russia is, is a, a big piece of this. and. Um, you know, there were there were clearly some calculations that we made about, um, you know, assumptions about where our base was that just weren't there. And, um, you know, as I think, you know, we've got a lot of a lot of work to do in the Democratic side. Um, I don't think we got to start from scratch. We have a good thing going. We won. We won by 2.5 million mm-hmm. votes. We didn't win in the right places. Right. Uh, and I think one of the signs of the work that's got to be done, particularly at the state level, is what happened in Ohio this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, with John Kasich signing this one piece of legislation. And we've seen that on state after state after state, right? That's right. 16 states have now signed 20-week abortion ban measures. Whoa. And Jesus. Ohio was 20 weeks. 16 states? I thought Ohio was the first. Whoa. That's how much I know. So, yeah. I mean, I, abortion restrictions. Yes. So, I mean, at this... Roe v. Wade is 24 weeks, right? And, of course, exceptions for life and health of the woman after that. And... Um, and you've seen these advancements all over the country, and all eyes are on Ohio and John Kasich. I mean, he remember he's the Republican who's supposed to be the moderate one, the normal one, right? The one who kind of had to be the voice of reason. The anti-Trump, yeah, yeah, like for thinking conservatives, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to point out that before he signed this bill, he vetoed a six-week mm-hmm. abortion ban. Mm-hmm. Not to give him any credit here, right? But Mm-mm. the fact that the Ohio state legislature put forward a bill and thought it would be a good idea to even push the notion of banning abortion after six week, uh, six weeks. It's terrifying. It is absolutely terrifying, especially in a state like Ohio, where we have Republicans running the show there. Um, and uh, clearly their agenda is um, to take Roe v. Wade on directly mm-hmm. in as extreme a position as they can and force a vote in the Supreme, force a test in the Supreme mm-hmm. Court where Donald Trump has said that his one criteria 
criterion for a Supreme Supreme Court justice is a promise to overturn Roe exactly. v. Vote to overturn Roe v. Wade. He's been explicit about that throughout the campaign, yeah, right. and he continues to be explicit about that. I think we need to lose sight, not lose sight of the fact that these Republicans in Ohio and across the country are now feeling emboldened by Donald Trump in office. They don't even have to wait for him to be sworn in to be president of the United that's States. That's scary. They feel yeah, like they really can do scary, this now. That's absolutely right. Yeah, sure they do. Right. No, he's given them uh, either directly or indirectly a, a carte blanche, right? That's Green right. light, just go ahead, be as extreme as you want, and you won't have any problem here mm-hmm. when, when it comes to either the White House or the Congress or the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And I want to take a second just to, to talk a little bit about the the, tw- the idea of a 20-week abortion ban and what that means, because I think a lot of us are probably hearing or, or can say, well, 20 weeks, 24 weeks, what does it really yeah. matter? Th- yeah. Those four weeks really matter. One percent of abortions happen between 20 weeks and 24 weeks. These are, ki- these are you know, families who have, you know, cribs and names picked out and are ready for these kids and it is something that has happened that is tragic and awful and sad and scary like that is the reality of this this legislation it is not about this is what they think they're doing is trying to prevent you know abortions from happening this is really about the health and safety of mother and also of of these the fetus too i mean i just can't believe that um, that people can be so ignorant. You can go online and you can read story after story after story of women who have heart wrenching experiences of having to under you know, to go through and make that decision. You know, and that's a decision that they should be able to make between themselves and their doctors and no one else. But of course, the facts don't matter for these people. They don't. It's no, sad. Not at all. <laughs> The Parting Shot with Bill Press. This is The Bill Press Show. Yeah, don't look now, but it was a package deal. We not only got stuck with Donald Trump, we got stuck with his whole damn family. Yep, Ivanka Trump's going to take over the first lady's office in the East Wing. Her husband, Jared Kushner, has already emerged as a real power behind the throne. He's going to have an office in the West Wing next to the Oval Office. And sons Eric and Donald Jr. will be hanging out a lot of the time at the new Trump Hotel just up the street, which raises two. They'll also be hanging around the White House, which raises two questions. First, is all of And second, how can Donald Trump separate his business deals from the presidency when his two sons are still involved in picking members of the cabinet? Where's that firewall he promised to build? You know what? If Trump's not willing to build that firewall and separate himself from his business, he shouldn't have run for president in the first place. That's my parting shot for today, folks. Have a great, great weekend. Come back and see us on Monday, all refreshed and ready to go. This is the Bill Press Show. Have you ever wondered how to say good morning in Italian? Or what is goodbye in French? You can ask Alexa. Just say, what is happy birthday in German? Or how do you say hello in Japanese? Do you want to know how to say I love you in Spanish? Ask Alexa and start learning a new language today.